listening to the Weird Warriors podcast. I'm Max. I'm Rich. And on this podcast, we will be discussing the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983, issue by issue, right here. And this time around, we're going to take a look at issue number seven of the series, which came out around September, October 1972. And Rich is going to describe that issue's cover for you. Well, the cover was done by who else? Joe Kubert. And everything Joe Kubert does is a masterclass. Uh, the cover here, it's the seventh great issue. Blinded American infantryman is lying in a pile of rubble, crying out, help me, I can't see. And in the foreground, there's a skeletal arm reaching towards him. And a shadow on the wall behind him suggests that it's death, a laughing skull in robes carrying a scythe. And it's, yeah, the, the, the silhouette in the background just, just captures the whole thing. I mean, it's my one little strike on is the scythe kind of disappears behind the, the soldier's word balloon in the title of the comic. They probably could have moved things around a little bit to make the cover a little clearer. But it's, it still really effectively captures we know what's what's going on here so yeah this is a cover that just jumps off the shelf like you can see the old school design here where you want something to pop off in the rack to grab the reader's attention and you've got this guy lunging out at the reader and i just again like you you talked about that shadow of the reaper on the wall behind the soldier and i i love it because it's it's almost cartoony in style it's a, just very starkly lit it's a it's a cool contrast to the anatomical detail and the precise perspective on that skeletal forearm in the foreground it shows how how joe can get you know abstract just as easily as he can get realistic and i like the shadow of the scythe just fine uh, mostly it adds a nice read this way effect for the eyes it's part of that comic book composition type of stuff that an artist like joe is going to be thinking about but I do agree that it should have come to a point before the rightmost edge of the cover. It's like it was just too long to fit on the cover, and Joe would have known that. It's just like it, it must have been like, okay, close enough, let's go, you know. But other than that, you got three more of these to do. Yeah, other than that, like, um, yeah, and Joe was doing so many covers. Yeah, he was just a, a workhorse for that, and you know, and with good reason. They probably saw the sales numbers. Like last issue didn't have a Joe Kubert cover. The one before that did sold twice as much. You know, because he knew how to grab your eyes and move you around the image and and get you in there. And that's what this did. It's another great Joe Kubert cover for an issue of Weird War. If I had been around while well, I was alive, but if I had been buying comics at this time and I wasn't just a year old, uh, I would have grabbed this one immediately. So that brings us up to um, the first story in the issue. And I'm going to leave it up to you, man. Do you want to take the first story? Or you want me to do it? Yeah, I could lunge into this one. It's All right, fun. go for it. Framing sequence. It's, it's called Out of Action. And um, again, you know, this we're, we, we luck out. Uh, Joe Kubert is uh, back on duty, you know, for the framing sequence for this issue. And he absolutely kills it. I mean, this is this is just vintage Joe. I, I love, you know, his, the, his artwork in this. Marv Wolfman does the writing honors and the synopsis goes as such. It's uh, you have three GIs running through the woods after blowing up an enemy ammo dump with hand grenades. Uh, a Stuka dive bomber spots them and drops his bombs on the Americans. A corporal is badly wounded in the arms. Another soldier is equally hurt in the legs. Neither can move, and the Germans are coming. Charlie appears to be unhurt and runs off to find the medics. The corporal consoles his buddy by starting to tell stories he's heard about GIs that were knocked out of action but came back. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> <laughs> Your classic framing sequence. 
sense. So let me tell you the stories I've heard. Yes, listen. But uh, yeah, from a historic, I, I couldn't find anything, you know, historically wrong, which is, you know, always encouraging. But uh, from my, uh, my commendations, again, you know, we jonesed about uh, Joe Kubert's art styles any number of times. And there's a few panels in the framing sequence here where as the Stuka flies off, it leaves the three dazed Americans lying on and around a blasted tree, struggling to get up, smoke wisping off their uniforms. And the panel after that, as they start to cope with their wounds, just Kubert just owns capturing people in pain. You know, the shredded uniforms, the gritted teeth, you know, the shadows over their eyes and, you know, hands grasping at nothing in the air. It's... Just boom, just Joe. But just, there's absolutely nothing more to say. He, he just, he kills it. Yeah, the storytelling of someone like Joe Huber is, is impeccable. Like there doesn't need to be a single word printed in any comic book he's ever drawn for you to follow the story. I mean, certainly there have been some great words written around Joe Kubert art, but none of them are strictly necessary for you to understand what's going on. Like that silent aftermath panel you're describing is absolutely striking to look at. But for me to take a slightly different tack, I will just focus on Kubert's facial close-ups in general. There's one on page three, panel three here, that page three of this story, panel three, that is just amazing. It's, um, I think that's, the one you call Charlie. No, no, this is this is the guy that one of the guys that can't move. And he's like, the the crowds are coming. I I know they are. How are we gonna get out of here? But again, you can just look at his face and know that that's what he's going through. Like he's in sheer panic mode. And that's just the way is the facial muscles are tensed up. The mouth is snarling. The eyes are popping out of his head. Sweat it's, beating on his brow. Yeah. Every little detail is there. You could get rid of every word balloon and caption in this. And you could have written the same synopsis pretty much. You can see how the different people are injured. Like they don't have to tell you what's happening. You know, Joe's art does it all on its own. So again, just like, how do you follow that up? Well, you follow it up with the first full story in the issue, which is called. Well, wait a minute. Do you have a um? Do you have anything uh, to talk about for um? Uh, well, as um as I say, I always go into um, the original issues, you know, for the reprint stories and see if there's anything that I can find that's different. And uh, other than the usual, you no know, color changes, the make no more, make war no more at the end, and the floating head of the story storyteller corporal uh there aren't any differences in the originals and in uh the weird war tales uh at least in the issues that i have so that's that's always a two thumbs up yeah because this issue is is other than the framing sequence it's all reprints this time around right yeah this is this is actually the last one yeah, this is so last of the reprints. So yeah, so weird. like rather than like go through each one about what was changed from the original to the reprint, it's like just get out of the way. Right you now. checked it out ahead, and, and you're like, there's really <laughs> nothing significant, you know. Yeah. So again, we're jumping into the first full story. It is called Flying Blind, uh, reprinted from Our Army at War number twelve from July of 1953. Script is by Bill Woolfolk, who I'm not familiar with, penciled by Jerry Grandinetti, and inked by Joe Giella, who I am very familiar with <laughs> as names. They are fantastic classic artists. And you had a note in here saying, for the second time in three podcasts, you do not have the original for this one story. <laughs> yeah. um, so we don't know if there were art, you know, alterations to this one, but... Um, yeah, this from- is... This is that's the thing that 
that's my joke. This is uh, New Year's resolution number two. I'm going to fo focus on filling in on the holes of the collection. And once a month, I'm going to go hunt online. And when the year started, I had 47 to get. And as of right now, I've got 36. So I am jumping into this resolution with both feet. And that's I timed awesome. this resolution just as we're hopping out of the reprints. My timing sucks. Hey, that's <laughs> good, though. You're, you're going out and filling in back issue holes. So one of the whole missions of this podcast is accomplished. I found another way to get you to buy more comics, which is what I've been doing since I met you. So it's about 1989. Yeah, right so there, there we go. I'm back in. Man, I'm back in the game. <laughs> so the synopsis of Flying Blind, which, by the way, is a nice tie-in, again, to the theme of the framing sequence where people have been injured and have lost mobility or access to their senses. The synopsis is Thatcher is a pilot of an F-9F Panther aboard an aircraft carrier during the Korean War. A loner, he trusts no one and insists on doing everything solo. Attacking a ground target on one mission, Thatcher's plane is struck near the cockpit and he's blinded. Therefore, he's forced to trust his commander's verbal instructions as he's guided back to an airship for an emergency landing. He recovers to fly again, a loner, no more. <laughs> and you do have some killjoy for this one. Yeah, my usual bitch, you know, stop telling stories about things that happen five years in the future. Every time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But w w one thing I did catch, you know, that, you know, getting away from the, like, the, the nitpicky stuff is um, that Thatcher had his goggles down when he was blinded. But in later shots, they, the goggles appear to be undamaged. So that's a little artistical whoopsie. Oh, he totally had a spare that he put on for no reason after he was blind. That's a, no prize right there. I'm claiming it, even though that's from a different company. Yeah, I mean, the, the stories from the future thing, as I said before, I, I, I give that a break in that the work they had to do to go through the archives and find stories that fit the theme of the issue must have just been, you know, just exhausting. I'd have so, done it. You know. So they're like, hey, I got, a, I got a story where a guy had to fly while he was blind. Cool. Grab it. It's from the Korean War, though. Whatever. Move, move aside, you know? So, so I, I do give him a pass on that. But it is funny when you, you see that it's, like, happening in World War II. And, like, I once heard this story about something that hasn't happened yet. And it's like, something's got, going to happen five years ago. <laughs> you got hit harder by that blast than I thought, buddy. You know? So, all right. We'll, we'll go to commendations. And I'll let you because you, you got a heck of a, a, a piece of information on this one that I didn't yeah. know. So, take it Th away. This when I was when I was reading the story, it, it sounded familiar. It sounded like something I'd read about. So I did some research, and it's actually loosely based on a true story. On March 22nd, 1952, a little over a year before Army War Number 12 came out, uh, Lieutenant J.G. Kenneth uh, Schechter was flying an 81 Sky Raider, a prop job, when he was when he was hit by enemy fire and blind. And his commander flew alongside him for 45 minutes, giving him instructions to a rough airstrip behind UN lines where he bellied in. Uh, the incident was given the Hollywood treatment for the 1954 film Men of the Fighting Lady, who made the Sky Raider a jet and staged the landing on the carrier. Permanently blinded in his right eye, Schechter left the Navy months later and died in 2013. The real-life commander that guided Schechter home, uh, Howard Thayer, was killed in 1961 while attempting to escort another crippled plane back to the carrier. Both planes crashed in the Mediterranean and no remains were recovered. What can you say other than, wow. 
you know, that's quite impressive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is incredible and tragic. I mean, like, it, it just the fact that he, he tried to do it again and, and, you know, sadly lost his life doing it. I mean, and he must have known he was risking it the first time, too. He could have, you know, he could have failed, but he could, he just, this there guy just couldn't let the other people, you know, it couldn't let them die. It's, it's incredible. I mean, and this story itself was, was really cool. The art was amazing. I mean, what I was impressed by was Grandinetti and Giella, they can handle literally any type of scene with ease, like literally any kind of setting. It's, there's, it shifts from like a bunch of guys hanging out on page three, panel one, just dudes at ease, to aerial combat chaos on page four, panel one. And not one thing looks out of place. The various perspectives, moods, compositions in these pages are all perfectly executed. I even really like the final panel with its tiny, simple silhouetted planes flying into the sketch line sunbeams beneath a little parting expository scroll. Like that, it's it's almost a completely different style than anything else in the rest of the story. And it, it just all fits and it looks like they did it without even thinking about it. It just feels so natural. And when you really tear these pages apart, it's incredible how many different kinds of things they're asked to illustrate in a small number of pages. So not only was I blown away by you letting me know about how this was based on a true story that's even more incredible, but just this story itself you don't expect much of like, oh, we're going to tell a story about a guy who flew after he was rendered blind. But this story was so much more impressive than I was ready for. So we're off to a pretty darn good start, in my yeah. opinion, for this good, for this one. Good stuff. We got we got another story coming right up, man. I'll let you take it. Okay. Well, the next one, it's called The 50-50 War. It's the reprinted cover story from All-American Men of War number 41 from January 1957. The legendary team of Bob Conagher and Joe Kubert are on duty. And the synopsis is as such. Alec has spent most of his life carrying Frankie's responsibilities as well as his own, which irritates Alec to no end. Of course, after they enlist, they end up assigned to the same ski patrol outfit. Ambushed by Nazi paratroopers, Frankie is flash-blinded and Alec is wounded in the knee by a grenade. For once, Frankie has to carry Alec, who services his eyes as they ski to warn their unit about the Germans. They knock out two enemy machine gun nests, one with Thompson fire, the other by dropping a grenade on it as they jump over it, and return to the unit. Yeah, well, this the 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 killjoy was here. That this this jumped right out of me because you know I've skied most of my life. I was on my college's downhill team, and yeah, Frankie's balance, dodging enemy fire, and landing a jump with Alec and his hundred some odd pounds awkwardly hanging on for dear life at the same time. That is some damn near Olympic superhuman level stuff right there. That's your overly capable, you know, American fighting man. <laughs> Yeah, these guys were right these guys were James Bond, <laughs> even borderline Batman level of physical I, ability in this. I story. mean, good lord! <laughs> but um, but it's 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 you know it's it's still a fun story. I mean, like you know, uh, I've bitched before about where they always slather the swastikas on things in these war books and swastikas on the Nazi ski boot, ski boot, and the parachute pack and the holster. Ah! <laughs> swastikas swastikas everywhere yeah man all these stickers gotta go somewhere <laughs> but um it's it, this is actually a really really good episode because early cubert has a, a cleaner uh simpler style than his later work does and this is a, a, the perfect uh, uh, issue to have because you can go back and forth between 
the framing sequence and the artwork in the 50-50 war. And you can see how his, um, how his style uh, developed, you know, throughout the decades and everything. Yeah, you can definitely right. still tell it's the same guy, but, but it, it, it was a much cleaner style back in the 50s to what it developed into in the 70s. Yeah, I think it was safer in a way. Like, you know, as he got older, he was more confident and his, his more modern stuff is looser and almost, you know, sketchier, but, but just super confident. Like he knows he can draw whatever he wants to and he's just letting it down. Like the earlier stuff, you, again, I would have known this was Joe Kubert at a glance, but it's a far more controlled Joe, even as cool as this story is and how much action is packed into it. This is Joe Kubert on a leash a bit. Like he's keeping himself under control. So I, I, I agree, man. It like, it was very cool to see the historical shift over two decades in one artist inside this one book. So as far as what my commendations are for this story, I wanted to say that I was sure as each one of us was reading this story, we were thinking of calling the other one Frankie during this recording (laughs) now of course as we said the art is awesome i want to point out the opening splash panel and panel four the final page not only are these really excellent drawings but hubert made them look that way with just the most awkward figural setups i can imagine (laughs) like none of these things look comfortable like uh let's um so let's see here we are talking about the opening splash pad this is when they're they're skiing on top of each other like when one's carrying the other and there's a pillbox in the foreground and and explosions and gunfire and shushing skis yeah good lord the one guy is you know on the other's back and he's got his foot out straight he's firing a rifle you imagine his other arm is wrapped around his buddy to hold on and the other guy's deep knee bend skiing carrying all that weight with a with a rifle that's being fired on his back that's just for starters blind (laughs) yeah and uh like yeah it's just like wow well, I mean, you know, and even with that, that, that <laughs> setup when he got the script, when Joe Kubert got the script and he's like, okay, these guys are skiing and uh, one's carrying the other on his back and they're also fighting. And Joe was like, even this early safer, more controlled version of Joe Kubert, where he was like, yeah, I can do that. I can make that work. And he absolutely did. It's incredible. That's just another oh, example. Like he's always had it, you know, he's always <laughs> had the skills. You That's know? almost believable. And for the writing, I loved the banter between these two. I thought the story was a heck of a lot of fun. It was cheesy as hell, super unbelievable, but I had a blast reading it. I liked the banter between these two, especially um, what jumped out at me was, you know, the one guy saying, home, James. And I'm, I realized, you do not hear that anymore. No one says home, James. <laughs> like that is, that is the generational thing. That's like, that made me go, oh my goodness, I'm an old man. Like I, I got that, that in 30 years. <laughs> I got that joke. And, and this is a story from 1957. <laughs> so there, there we go. That's, that's, uh, that's, what was that one called? That's the 50-50 war. And uh, again, another reprint from the 50s, which I think all these reprints are. Yep. And one thing that isn't a reprint is one of our least favorite features uh, in Weird War coming up next. This is the cartoon stylings of John Costanza, who is a very talented cartoonist, maybe not such a great writer. Uh, This time it's not called Military Madness. It's called the Military Hall of Fame. And it sucks. Um, (laughs) it's, It's no good. It's not funny. Um, I'm not, uh, do I have to describe this? Let me see. Yeah, it's four panels. 
you have four different dudes and they each earned a supposed place in the military hall of fame by doing something stupid that's supposed to be funny and i did have you know i guess we we're going to say we have uh commendations or things to say about yeah, this so take a take the first shot you know well, part of me was actually wondering if the four soldiers featured weren't real people that did something amazing until i finally keyed in on their names you know willie whackham peter gums and they're like ah okay never mind you got me <laughs> yeah I, out. yep and as i mentioned the cartooning itself is good the joke names almost work except one is named Bernie Henderson? Like Bernie I'm, Bernard Surfs Up Henderson. Yeah. Bernard Surfs Up Henderson. Okay, so Bernie Henderson. The other ones are obviously joke names like Irving Treadway, like you said, Peter Gums, Willie Wackham, who's who's hitting Nazis Baseball, with his yes. with his rifle, you know, but but then Bernie Henderson, who outswam a shark. Uh, uh, In full comeback here. He just couldn't even keep the joke concept as weak as it was together for four straight panels so again i'd love to see a bunch of stuff by john costanza that was written by somebody else because i like his drawings a lot it's, it's fun stuff to look at so i took that bullet and uh <laughs> you did 50 50 war but i'm gonna throw you into the next uh the next full story because i had to talk about john costanza's writing <laughs> Okay, well, the next one is called The Three G.I.s. It is the reprinted first story in Star Spangled War Stories number 62 from October of 1957. Bill, the Batman Finger, and Russ Heath are on point ah, for this episode. Ah, <laughs> so, yeah, as, as much as we give the Joe Kubert love, uh, Russ Heath gets almost as much love. Yeah, I'm raising my rum and coke to Russ Heath right now. (laughs) Russ Heath is, you know, is obviously a stellar, stellar talent also. And uh, the synopsis here is Stan, Hal, and Tom are three GIs that always spend time together. Stan trips on everything, Hal sleeps through everything, and Tom never speaks. So their buddies get them a gag gift of those three see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil monkeys, which they resent. Uh, approaching the battle line, the three GIs are scattered by enemy artillery fire. Stannis flash-blinded gasp, and can't see. He literally stumbles onto a Nazi about to shoot him and recognizes the shape of the German's Luger. Hand-to-hand breaks out, and Stan wins. Hal is deafened, but sees the shadow of the enemy fighter diving on him just fine. He dives to the side as the German tries to strafe him and returns fire with his Thompson, shooting a plane down. Tom has climbed a tree and sees two enemy tanks approaching, but when he tries to radio for a bazooka team, he discovers he can't make a sound. The commander of the first tank sees Tom and opens fire with his Schmeisser, shooting off the branch Tom is balancing on. He falls into the tank and takes out the crew. The second tank opens fire on Tom's tank and misses. Tom returns fire and doesn't. Epilogue. Tom is a chatterbox. Hal hears everything. And Stan can see a mosquito from 10 yards away. (laughs) (laughs) So Killjoy was here. It's pretty easy for this one. Tom falls through a tight hatch from 20 feet up and eliminates a tank crew solo in hand-to-hand combat, although they only show the commander. Okay, well, whatever. (laughs) The blind guy winning a fist fight with an armed man is some Derek Devil level crap too, but whatever. Yeah, man, I had to toss that in there. Like, I'm like, okay, so this dude is Matt Murdock. 
that you can't see. I'm sorry. I know you got a hold of the guy's wrist, but then he's just going to pummel you unconscious. Swish, swish, swish. <laughs> yeah, the, the one, um, like I said, you know, Heath Art, you know, love Heath's art. But one little, one little thing that, they, that he threw into the story that I like is before each soldier's tale, you know, assigned to whatever his ailment is, they include the corresponding monkey, you know, the, you know, the speak no evil monkey is the guy that can't talk and the see no evil monkey is the guy that can't see and everything. I, I thought that was a cute little, cute little touch that uh, Russ incorporated into the storyline. So. Yeah, that was definitely the, the nicest touch in the art. I mean, you, you nailed it right there. It was such a cool idea to take that gift of the monkeys and then use them as kind of a narrative little framing device for each part of the story to keep that theme going. And just the cartooning that Russ did with the monkeys was really neat to see because he often doesn't do like whimsical looking stuff, but it just showed like, Oh yeah, he's got that in his tool belt. Check it out. Here's some, here's some goofy little monkeys on it on each page. And um, you know, and the story was really fun too. I like, this is some of the best writing by Bill Finger that I've seen in, in these stories yet. Like I, I love Bill Finger for what he did for Batman, but I've honestly been a little kind of eh about his, work in these weird war tales except for this story it's just this, this one is just goofy enough to to really win me over like and as as far as the art like i said you got it those monkeys are just like a flash of brilliance but i'll say the opening splash page is is excellent the texturing on these figures you see the three gis and there's they're they're like obscured in this backwash from this blast behind them and their bodies are just silhouettes kind of but almost like silhouettes done covered in little sketchy lines almost like the the golden age human torch you know their lines are there's just lines sketching it's just it's hard to even describe it's like an etch-a-sketch drawing of three soldiers stumbling forward in front of a you know a blast behind them and it just looks incredible and i I also really like the final three panels that show um, how these soldiers were changed by their experience. You know, where you see like, now the one never shuts up and the other guy here's everything, you know, here's everything and you know, the other dude like can see a mosquito on someone's face when they're napping yards and yards away. Like I, well, I actually, thought- <laughs> The funny thing is looking at this panel, the guy's vision is all the more impressive because Stan is looking at the dude's left cheek and the mosquito is on the dude's right cheek. So that's like some x-ray vision crap going on. Right yeah, you're at, dude, you're absolutely right. He is Matt Murdock because this is the guy that couldn't see. And now he's detecting a mosquito on the other side of someone's face who's pretty far away. There's your killjoy was here moment crap right there. That <laughs> is, man, that is some radar sense level stuff. So, yeah, I, I really had, um, I really had a blast with this one. Uh, you know, as like you said, the guy drops from a tree into a tank, beats up the entire crew. The other tank misses. It, it's just ridiculous. But I liked every <laughs> single part of it, and that, uh, that carries us up to the uh, end of the framing sequence here. And I'll, I'll grab, uh, I'll grab this one. It's called Ah. I can't see. And it's Wolfman and Cubert wrapping it up with synopsis being Charlie, the guy who actually was able to move and, you know, run away to try to warn everyone about the Germans. Here's a three-man German patrol while looking for his unit and eliminates them with rifle fire and a grenade. He then yells, I can hear you. Show yourselves. But it's his unit coming up behind him and startling him. Charlie tells the sergeant, the other two guys are hurt and need help. And uh, they assure him, They'll be taken care of. The sergeant continues to tell Charlie he was lucky and got away clean. 
Charlie replies, I can't see. The stuka that hit us in the woods blinded me. So he wasn't, you know, he wasn't that lucky at all. Like the other guys were wounded and unable to leave, but he was blind this whole time. The whole time he took off from his unit trying to, or took off from his buddies trying to find his unit. So there we go. That's it. The, you know, the big secret was Charlie couldn't see and somehow found and fought his way to his unit to get the job done. So other than that, bunch of improbable stuff you had something else you wanted to add for a killjoy on this one yeah there's in the second panel there's you can see uh he's hiding up against a tree and there's uh, three germans going by in the background and he's all like hobnail boots i can hear him out there heading towards my buddies and i'm like yeah hobnail boots on dirt okay <laughs> if you say so <laughs> yeah man maybe there was acorns on the ground or something i mean if you're like, walking on cobblestones or hardwood floor or something like that yeah sure but if you're walking on, on, a, on a forest floor or something like that yeah i don't really think hobnail boots are going to give you away that much kind of really gives away the whole stealth mode thing if you're in the fields so. again man I'll, I'll i'll try to no prize this and i know that's a marvel thing but I'll, I'll try to help the writer out here it ties into this whole daredevil theme we've got going on in this issue <laughs> that trope in comics where if you lose one of your senses the others are heightened which isn't true at all in real life but uh in comics and in the movies it sure is so he can't see so he can hear something as quiet as hobnail boots on dirt. So that should have cued us in. This writer uh, is actually a genius. Marv Wolfman knows what he's doing. <laughs> so, you know, I'll give that to him because I like Marv. Yeah, but yeah, just going, going, going back to, you know, the commendations, you know, just you know, talking about the uh, creative team for the, for the two-page wrap-up for the framing sequence. Again, you know, Kubert doing the things that Kubert does. So like the first page, panel four. You know, there's uh, there's this um, the way Kubert placed the German in comparison to the band to the panel makes one think that Charlie had shot him in the head. And the torn metal at the back of the helmet flying away from the German leads. Absolutely no credence to that thought whatsoever. And so it's too graphic to be shown in the. Um, Approved by the Comic Code Authority, obviously. Yeah, again, but Joe knows how to get around that. He tells that story, and if you're paying attention, you're going to pick up on what really happened, and they don't have to be explicit about it. Like, he knows the limitations that he's working in, and they're, they're easy for him to get around. He just it takes him – he doesn't have to adjust his stride to tell the story. It's – it's such a great detail you pulled out there. Just shows how good he is. Now, for me, of course, I love my Joe Kubert close-ups. And the close-up of the blinded GI's face is awesome. But I, I really liked the layout of the four panels on the bottom half of the first page. They were just shaped and tilted perfectly to pace the flow of the action. Again, he knows the medium he's working in. He, he knows that you're supposed to draw the reader's eye across the page. And these four panels have hardly any backgrounds in them. And the last one is even just a red background with a, a sound effect. Blam! Like, it, in other artists' hands, this could look like some of the laziest work in the story or in the book. But in Kubert's hands, he's like... he just knows that this has to be a tense action scene where your perspective shifts three times and ends in the sound of an explosion. And it, it, it just uses that physical space. A physical space on a comic page is time. And he uses that so perfectly there that for me, that was the standout moment of that story. And, and I'm sticking to that statement. And that's going to carry us to what's you know becoming one of my favorite parts of every issue, the letters page 
APO Weird Boar Tales, and uh, you can you can bring us on into that. Okay, well here we go. We got uh, what do we got here? About five letters, I think. And um, a couple issues ago, with the uh, we had the uh, the cover where uh, we, we suspected that Qbert was taking a shot at uh, N Adams, Neil Adams, on the cover of issue number five. And based on the letter pages, those con- suspicions are 100% confirmed. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about, Norris, Nanook Adams. Uh, uh. Uh, <laughs> uh, we also find out that the editing duties are being handed over to Joel Orlando. So this is the last we are going to be seeing of Joe Kubert holding the reins in uh, Weird War Tales, at least on a regular basis. So this is uh, Joe's send-off, as it were, as the reprints end and we get into the all-new uh, material moving forward. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's sad, but it was a heck of an issue. It's a, it's a great send-off, and using mostly reprints from the 50s, which I was kind of joking about you know, uh, last episode that I was dreading or I was looking forward to seeing the the back end of the 50s reprints. And then this issue comes around and makes me love every single one of them they put in here. So again, Joe, like he knew somehow he was going to be putting that in my face decades later. I love it. And it, 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 like I said, it's sad to see Joe, or Joe Kuber leaving, but Joe Orlando is someone whose name I know and I love his editorial work. He did a lot of stuff, I think, on House of Mystery, House of Secrets, those horror books that I love so much. So so this is going to be in good hands, in my opinion. As far as the letters, it was very cool to see all the love for the story Slave and Russ Heath in general. And uh, Joe's comments, man. I am going to miss those if he doesn't do the, the answers in the letters page anymore. His snarkiness was something I did not expect. Like He has phrases like, thanks are gratefully accepted. Money, even more so. You know, this little little snide asides like that. Uh, he he's one of the best people answering letters in a comic that I've ever come across, and I didn't expect that from him. I didn't know he had that kind of that style, a sense of humor. And then it's also revealed the tabletop diorama series, the one that you actually you know that Sam Glansman drew and that you actually built one of them. It was Sam's idea. So I'm like, okay, so no wonder it worked out so well when you actually decided to put it together. Sam came up with it. So it wasn't just something someone told him to do. So of course it's going to turn out well. Like Sam does not do anything halfway. So that, that was cool to see too. And uh, that's just, again, another great letters page. I hope that these run through every single issue we're going to cover because they've been just a blast. I love reading old letters pages and these have not disappointed. And speaking of things in old comics, we're going to point out our favorite ads in this issue and Rich, you're up first. Okay. Well, in the middle of the, um, the three GI story, there was a full page ad for uh, Kenner's smash up Derby supersonic power uh, cars, a sonic sound model sounds like real racers. And there are these cars where they have that little, you know, the little zip handle cord that you would whip through them. And they would have the gyro power, no batteries, no track, sonic power, sonic sound, howl of power. And they would go flying into table legs or other cars or whatever and doors and hoods and trunks and every tires and everything would go flying off of them you know with the force of the impact and you got to take the parts and you could interchange them and have all kinds of accident uh, evil people-esque fun that was this kind of thing from back in the 70s just uh, you know demolition derby you know type toy and uh, this one kind of uh, spoke out to me a little bit because i didn't have this toy as a kid but it reminded me of I had like the little like Hot Wheels sized cars, and it had little spring loaded 
uh, damaged section, you know, that you could rotate back to uh, undamaged after you ran it into another car. So, so it, that, it, it kind of reminded me of this when I saw this ad. It was, so it's obviously, you know, this, this would be a fun, you know, I think this would be a really fun toy for, for you know, any you know, pre-adolescent boy to have is just to, you know, be able to wreck crap and be able to put it back together and wreck crap all over again. Heck, I'd buy a set of them right now. I mean, I, I had those Hot Wheels cars you're talking about too, or at least the Hot Wheels size cars, and they were ripping off that gimmick. They were riding that gimmick at least even a into the early 80s with um i had these uh i'm, I'm a huge like masters of the universe he-man uh fan like ridiculous level i had all that stuff and they had these battle damage armor suits for two of them where it was the same gimmick like you'd hit them in the chest and the armor would flip around and look all messed up and then you could just rotate it back and they were fine so that that little toy gimmick uh that that hung around for a while that never stopped being fun yeah i, I would love this kenner smash up derby when i saw that ad um i even thought rich probably going to pick this one but i (laughs) yeah but i would love to get my hands on one of these sets so for my ad i picked something that's very very 70s and i was surprised to find something this 70s in a 1972 comic because normally the beginning of one decade is very much like the end of the previous but this is like boom you were in the 1970s now the ad is for cloth patches that the tagline says, get these dynamite embroidered cloth patches that tell it like it is. I know mine. <laughs> exactly. Like it's right after the letters page. This monstrosity of an ad offers up uh, these, these, um, these three inch patches that not only, they not only offer all kinds of certainly not properly licensed material, but there's such disparate like phrases as black is beautiful. And, and Oh, um, there's a Confederate flag patch too. So yeah, there's that. <laughs> but um, I was just stunned by how like, you know, I remember this version of the 70s. And obviously I was only a year old when this book came out. So, you know, this was the, the leading edge of this kind of 1970s content. And I was very happy to see it, except for probably the Confederate flag. But hey, it was, you know, it, it was 1972. What are you going to do? But um, again, there were a bunch of those that I would order and um, put them on my jean jacket right now if I could get away with a jean jacket again. <laughs> that kind of went out sometime in the 80s, I think. So see, it is possible for me to talk about an ad that isn't a house ad for a Jack Kirby comic. So there. <laughs> wonders never cease and as you said next issue is going to be completely original stories that's going to no reprints so we're off and running joe orlando's coming and all new stories from here on out and so with that we'll leave you to wait for the next episode and remember make war no more <laughs>